You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Welcome, I'm Michaela Novak, Senior Fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics and Economics at the Mercatus Centre at George Mason University. The podcast episode today represents the second of a three-part mini-series on civil society, encompassing the practical nature of voluntary mutual assistance outside but entangled with the domains of market and state, and the theoretical dimensions of civil society to help us better understand group cooperation and social coordination. The concept of civil society has long held an esteemed position within classical liberal thought, eliciting not only scholarly attention, but as we will show during this mini-series, practical efforts of direct help and support for diverse communities. It is my very great privilege to speak to Lenore Ely. Lenore Ely is Vice-Rectoria Internationale and member of the doctoral faculty at Universidad Francisco Marroquin, UFM, in Guatemala City, Guatemala. She is co-editor of the Roman and Littlefield book series, Polycentricity, Studies in Institutional Diversity and Voluntary Governance. She has co-edited three books, including Commerce and Community, Ecologies of Social Cooperation, History, on Proper Principles, Essays in Honour of Forrest MacDonald, and Liberty and Learning, Milton Friedman's Voucher Idea at 50. Lenore was founding editor of Conversations on Philanthropy, a scholarly journal published annually from 2004 to 2014. Lenore Ely has been affiliated with the Makeda Centre at George Mason University and has been Executive Director of the Philadelphia Society since 2014. She currently serves on the Standing Committee of the American Institute for Economic Research and since 2021 has been a board member of the Rising Tide Foundation. She was also founder of the Philanthropic Enterprise, a US-based research institute advancing the intellectual foundations of the free society by fostering connections between theory and practice in philanthropy, public entrepreneurship, and policy development. Ely holds a PhD and master's in history from the John Hopkins University, Baltimore, Maryland, a master of history from the University of Alabama and a Bachelor of Science Education earned from Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. I'm sure listeners would agree that Dr. Ely has a most impressive scholarly and career record in the study of civil society and is a powerful global voice for freedom through civil association. Lenore, it's a very great pleasure to have you on this edition of um, the Civil Society miniseries podcast. Uh, welcome. Thank you, Michaela. Uh, it's great to talk to you in person like this. We have communicated for many, many years on these subjects and have been doing an interesting dance with our different papers and such. So it's it's great to have conversation. Indeed, I've been a long admirer of your work and uh, hopefully uh, through this uh, podcast we'll be able to showcase uh, many of your important contributions. So I'd like to uh, kick off by asking you, uh, what instigated your interest in civil society and its diverse organisational forms? Were there any noteworthy experiences, insights or knowledge gained through your life and career that inspired you to engage in in-depth studies on non-profit organisations? What inspired you? What motivated you? 
Well, in general, my training as a scholar is a historian. And so um, a lot of the work I did, I, specifically, I studied 17th century moral and political thought. And it was a time in the 17th century in England and Europe broadly of intellectual ferment. And so I've always been interested in this ideas-driven social crisis in a way that happened in the 17th century in England and then how institutions were shaped and reshaped during that period. But as early as that period, you don't really have something that's considered to be civil society. So out of that ferment of the 17th century, by the 18th century, you actually do have more robust conceptions of civil society. And so I think we have an interesting historical question as well as a theoretical question is, you know, what is this notion of society as something that stands differently from the um, from the polity, from the emerging state? And I think that emerging state of the early nation state is part of the backdrop against which we have to think about the emergence of something that we now call civil society and that opens up space, a broader space for um, individual liberty and human freedom. And so it's quite clear just from thinking about uh, the the timeline you indicated there that the emergence of liberalism uh, sort of coincides with the emergence of all of these varied systems, including of civil society. So I wonder to what extent have the key tenets of classical liberalism, including that of free association, as well as uh, voluntaristic forms of collective action to resolve social problems or even of so-called mainline economics, which keeps to the same commitments as philosophical liberalism, motivated your own work. Has that been an important influence? Yes, yeah, somewhat. Um, I've done a lot of uh, self-study of, of economics and some of the social science. And um, the, the, the origin of the, the interest became when I was invited by a gentleman named Dick Cornell to help him do some projects on uh, understanding philanthropy, he was particularly, uh, you know, interested in this institution called philanthropy and you know, and the giving foundations. But then th- conceiving that as a broad term, even bigger than just what we could see as visible foundation giving, but this broad uh, motivation of people to help one another, and that the sort of help that came about through mutual aid, you know, in- individual giving, different kinds of things. And so he and I started some projects convening scholars. And we were very interested in thinking about the theoretical foundations, you know, of philanthropy itself and how does that fit into our broader sort of understanding of liberal economies. So it really was a set aside sector. I think that scholarship emerged thinking about that distinction between state and society, uh, really thinking about states and markets or markets and polities, things like that. So we got trapped in kind of a dualistic conversation for many, I'd say, centuries. <laughs> and didn't really take theoretical account, nor much empirical account, of this thing called civil society. So we have a few leading thinkers that begin to note the need for a theoretical framing of this space, but nothing really develops much. So I think that's the work that I got intrigued with doing, you know, is really thinking through this space uh, in a way that we can theoretically frame it and bring some of the economic way of thinking, understanding into this space to help us then shape better institutions and, you know, problem solve better through the sphere of civil society and philanthropy. I'm, I'm quite glad that you invoked uh, the figure of Dick Cornell in uh, your response. I, I think he's an extremely important yet underrated uh, sort of figure in the uh, sort of the intellectual theorization of uh, civil society in modern times. And we'll return to uh, him a little later, I trust, in the, uh, in the conversation. So, to, to move um, now from the scene setting as to sort of your work and involvement in uh, the ideas about civil society to uh, turning towards uh, your own sort of major works and career highlights, a question I have is that um, one of your major career initiatives, the, the journal, uh, Conversations on Philanthropy, sought to promote inquiry and reflection on the importance of liberalism, as we've just discussed, for the flourishing of local communities, political societies, and humanity as a whole. So reflecting on your 10-year experience as editor and founder of the journal, are you able to discern some commonalities across authors that you've detected by way, let's say, of themes, issues, or theoretical insights? If so, what are those common themes that were uh, sort of uh, distilled through the journal? Well, I think the the predominant common theme is that we are all sort of grappling and touching different pieces of the elephant. 
So I think that nobody really, um, when we started this work, um, you know, back around the turn of the millennium, around 2000, 2001, and the journal first came out in 2004, and we called it Conversations Explicitly to try to engage people because there isn't a there wasn't at that time a really good body of literature to draw upon but we wanted to bring people from lots of different scholarly disciplines together and practitioners because there's two sides of this you know there's the operational level of how people solve problems in daily life and what they're doing and then there are these theoretical things that we like to sit around and talk about as scholars where how do those two things intersect and then how do those things intersect and change using the professional vocabularies of different disciplines? And so I think the common thread is that we're grappling with different pieces of an elephant and we still haven't converged on maybe a, a compelling one way of defining what that animal is. And so I think some of the some of the critical questions that we sought to to look at over those over the years was really to understand well what's the what are the institutions you know empirically just what is that business that's going on in civil society can we describe it if we describe it empirically can we then see the patterns and see the kind of institutions that are operating there so we bring a very institutional lens i think through most of the questions that we're we're posing and asking over the years to think about what are the institutions that actually make that process work. Your own work on social movements, I think, is a good example of that. Um, trying to really dig in and we talk about a social movement, but what is it? And so now, you know, we have the work that you did there trying to bring those liberal political economy insights into framing a theoretical understanding of social movements. So those are, I think that we have that problem on many, many fronts. Um, and so definitionally, that's a common set of questions. And we called this conversations as a way to engage a lot of voices, to shed a lot of light on things. Um, I'd say one of the biggest ahas that we had fairly early on in the work was the definition of philanthropy. You know, a lot, a lot of the work around philanthropy is so philanthropy is the love of humankind. <laughs> and one of our participants in a colloquium one day said philanthropy is the love of what it means to be human. And everybody in the room gasped, you know, and I, and now I think, you know, our, our conversational uh, sphere, um, which is, you know, including several hundred scholars now over the years that have been working on these kinds of topics, you know, did, did really get an insight from that. It's the love of what it means to be human. So that means that we now have to bring anthropology, anthropological insights into the work as well and really think about what it means to be human. And I think a lot of the debates that were that we're engaged in now and in the contests in civil society have a lot to do with that broad understanding and disagreements that we have about what it means to be human. A lot of the things that, that go on there in that space. So I think that's one of the, um, one of the key insights that we've had. We've done some very interesting work in the more applied economics realm to really thinking about market failure. Uh, one of the leading um, theorists of civil society is Lester Salomon, and his work really came up with the theory of third-party governance, which was based in heavy empirical work, you know, starting in the 20th century, to look at the way that nonprofit entities were and civil society organizations were funded. And that empirical work suggests there's a lot of government funding that flows into the mix. The problem is that then he takes a normative position from his positive understanding of what happens. And and I think that we would contend a little bit that we need a different normative theory of civil society. You know, just the fact, the social fact of a lot of government funding of these institutions comes after certain institutional changes have taken place. So that brings the question of history so, you know, squarely into the mix. You know, what, was, what were these institutions over time? And so from that question, we've had a lot of interesting um, historical studies that have been undertaken trying to understand civil society entities in previous centuries and to really look at those and the evolution. There was no real term civil society, but the evolution of these forms of what I call sharing and caring and helping one another, uh, this human sentiment, which I think we can put right up there along with, you know, Adam Smith's truck barter and exchange is that we have this idea of, it, of it helping one another and of doing things with one another that aren't necessarily priced activities. And so we, we had to take seriously that question about the lack of prices and profit and loss in a lot of these civil society organizations and understanding what the ideas are operating, what motivations are operating, what the incentives for people to work in that space are. And so a lot of historical case studies and Comparative political economy, I think, have emerged from that work. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about all three of those developments. 
Oh, certainly. And uh, there, there are a couple of uh, really uh, compelling insights just from uh, your your comments here. So uh, the reference to uh, sort of Smith, the alignment of truck barter and exchange combined with sentiment uh, and using that to sort of analyse uh, questions about the, the operations and implications of philanthropy and non-profit organisations is a very ingenious way of squaring what in the end I think is a falsified Das Adam Smith problem because you know, sentiment and incentives sort of combine. And I also thought that uh, your comment about philanthropy as the art and the activity, what it is to be human, is is, is a really poignant, quite quite beautiful statement. And uh, sort of a final sort of quick observation. It is quite clear that um, over the 10 years, the conversations on uh, philanthropy journal uh, exhibited a, a, a quite special talent of being able to bridge theory, high theory and practice. And I think I think though that scholarly technique, that academic technique uh, is as applicable today is as ever, not only in terms of the study of nonprofits. So the, the final issue of Uh, conversations on philanthropy, it reflected on the life and times of a figure that we just referred to earlier, uh, Richard Cornell, uh, an advocate of philanthropy, scholar and defender, a robust defender of non-profits indeed, and other civic uh, associations as elemental to our living free lives. So Cornell is an influential figure in the modern theory of civic liberalism, but perhaps may uh, not be so appreciated today, especially amongst uh, younger audiences listening to the podcast. So I'm wondering what do you see as his major intellectual contributions, especially given that you were associated with him for a fair amount of time. And what does uh, Dick Cornell uh, mean to you personally and professionally? Well, he was a he was a fabulous mentor. Um, and Dick and I met right around the year 2000. And he was trying to start something, a journal. And he had a project from the 1960s, really trying to understand this third sector. And it was Dick Cornell who wrote a book, 1965, called Reclaiming the American Dream. And he coined the term the independent sector there. Yes, there's there's a normative conception of the society of the civil society sector in that in that framing. He wanted it to be independent of government, independent of you know markets to a certain extent, but but more aligned with the kind of behaviors that take place in markets, voluntary exchange, voluntary association, than with the more coercive structures, you know, tax and spend and regulate government. And what he had observed through the early 20th century, and Dick had been a student of Mises at NYU, uh, so he studied economics, but he decided he did not want to teach. So he had gone into the philanthropy world and was a young program officer during the 50s at the Volcker Fund, which was the philanthropic foundation that helped to support bringing uh, scholars such as Mises and Hayek over to the United States after World War II. So Dick had had exposure to a lot of these of these gentlemen, and he left when the Volcker Fund closed. Um, Dick thought he, this work of civil society was very important, so he went and founded two or three different things. He was a founder. He was a doer. He was a problem solver. But he had this deep theoretical interest, and so I think that was what made Dick unique in his ability to see what was happening on the ground and then probe it, you know, looking for institutional and intellectual ways of framing that work, you know, again, thinking that we need epistemic frameworks to shape the work that we do. And so Dick was questioning when he wrote the book, he said, look, we set aside a whole sector of human activity. You know, if, if, we're, if human action is the thing we need to study, we've left aside a huge amount of human action. Not all human action is political and not all human action is um, commercial. And we need to figure out how these other institutions work in society. So that was the big question. And the the 65 book was very acclaimed. And then he published a couple more books. But then in the 90s, when this when the Soviet Union fell apart, Dick wrote a very trenchant piece called New Work for Invisible Hands. And it brought together a lot of very critical insights in terms of the way that Soviet communism had operated. Um, and you know, the tension of Marxism with civil society had operated for, you know, nearly a century in the Soviet Union by this point. So you've got generations who have come up with very little understanding of this independent civil society because the communist state actively suppressed 
individual association, voluntary association, all kinds of things, the church, religion, all these things that we think of as that kind of social glue of civil society. So Dick could could foresee that we we were missing this theoretical framing to help us think about post-communist development of institutions. And we had drifted a long way uh, in the West as well toward a sort of social welfare state. And he was concerned that we would keep moving in that way, that, that polities and societies, that people would move toward more social democratic institutions than toward genuinely free institutions. And so I think Dick's concern was that to have genuinely free societies, we had to find room to describe the space of civil society in a robust way. Look, I, I think the, the the power of Cornell's point is encapsulated in the uh, the final remarks that you made in your response with respect to his concern uh, about state centric approaches to you know political action and broadly sort of communal action and a concern that I would have about the sort of the, the growth and the scope and the size of government is, is that by correspondingly innovating civil society and its sort of scope of activity, it would actually limits psychologically the horizons of uh, individuals uh, in being able to imagine voluntaristic modes of bottom-up, getting together, mutually helping one another, collective action through those modes. So that's especially important. So Cornell's really pivotal to an understanding here, I think. He was very concerned. I think I'm glad you raised the point about the sort of psychological effects you know, again, we have to think about what a human is and, and how our psyche work and, and the psychological effects of that centralization. He could observe, you know, in through the, the welfareism of civil society. He also wrote a book, though, called Demanaging America, which pointed to similar phenomenon in the large central corporations that existed. And that, you know, so he, he wrote about, you know, back office America and corporate America, front office and back office and the alienating effects. So I think in many ways, you know, Dick was, he was sympathetic to some of the concerns about alienation that are raised by Marx and also raised by Adam Smith. I mean, if we think about those alienation concerns, uh, he was very opposed to the way that Marx and Marxism and you know, later Marxists tried to think about how you solve those alienation concerns. And so I think it was a very important point. So I'm glad you bring up that point. But if the state does everything for you, um, if the state doesn't allow individuals to constructively negotiate with one another to solve problems, um, then, you know, there isn't what we call an innervation of the psyche that happens. There's learned helplessness that emerges. So Dick was, you know, the learned helplessness literature uh, that Seligman, Seligman and others developed, you know, really comes about a little bit later. So Dick was very prescient. That book was in the 1970s when he wrote about the alienation of the corporation called Demanaging America. So that's a very important one. And then, um, but later this work on philanthropy, he hadn't given up on. So he said, let's go, let's keep studying it. You know, now's the time we have to, we have to really dig in here and begin to understand this. Absolutely. And so uh, sort of moving on, in 2015, you co-edited an important book, uh, Commerce and Community, with Robert Garnett Jr. and Paul Lewis. So in addition to responding to the reductive charge that liberalism merely concerns the efficient operation of markets, a number of authors in in the book uh, sought to clarify the place of mutual assistance and uh, voluntaristic collective actions in a liberal system of thought committed to methodological and normative individualism. So I'm wondering, could you describe here, uh, using the book as a pivot, how civil societal action can be squared with liberal individualism? Or is that possible? Well, I think it can be squared. I think it's important to do so. The the subtitle of the book is Ecologies of Social Cooperation. So we use something of a organic metaphor there, a biological metaphor, thinking about how social cooperation emerges through the actions of people. Um, This is a very thick and robust book, um, you know, looking at the evolution of human cooperation from evolutionary economics, um, looking at legal institutions, addressing some of the early questions around, you know, passions and interests, such as the work of, oh, am I thinking about there, the theorist of the passions and the interests, uh, Hirschman. Uh, with Hirschman, 
um, looking at uh, you know nature of the organization of the corporation. So there are lots and lots, even even looking at you know commerce and uh, kidneys and organs and things of this nature. So you know looking to to the idea that human beings have plans and. We know that we know, we believe markets coordinate plans. We have Hayek's insights that knowledge is very divided and that prices and property rights and prices and profit and loss signals help us coordinate. When you have a sphere where property rights are more collective, uh, if you have voluntary associations, you have these artificial creatures called corporations or associations or even unincorporated kind of social movements and entities. Uh, what are the property rights in those entities? Well, you've got dispersed questions around that fundamental piece. So then you have to look at different ways that people are negotiating for these for these kinds of things. And I think ethics, when we talk about things like, you know, the commercialization of blood and kidneys, there's something deeply troubling to people about organ trafficking or commerce in organs. And yet at the same time, we know that, you know, commercial Incentives could help us maybe get those organs matched up better with people who really need them. And so there are there are challenges there. There are ethical considerations that, that happen in this space. And I think civil society is very much a space of, of where we negotiate these ethical concerns. And markets are not devoid of ethics. They're, I think commerce is about those that commercial activity of human beings, not for profit activity, but commerce in terms of the, you know, the way that we interact with one another and negotiate. Uh, I'm really proud in that book of the um, the Envoy, which is the end of the book, which is actually a poem by the, the poet Frederick Turner, which is um, was a gift to us for the book, which is the Apologia of Mercurius. So he's writing about Mercury, the god of exchange, and and how Hermes and is the, the other name for Mercury, but how we need that mercurial engagement of human beings with one another. So I, I very much encourage people to, if they can't tackle anything else, go read Fred's poem and think about the mercurial nature of human exchange and conversation and um, the way then that we come together and identify and solve problems. So it's very much a collective action problem set here for addressing in that book. So a common uh, feature of your work is, in my uh, view, your effort to explain, and I quote from a 2005 introductory essay of yours in the journal Economic Affairs, and I quote that uh, the best philanthropic activity has more in common with the dynamic creativity of the marketplace than it does with the bureaucratic order of the modern state. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate on the meaning or the meanings of that statement, and perhaps with some reference to perhaps any case examples that you might be familiar with. What was the adjective I used there for um, philanthropic activity, the best philanthropic There's more in common with the dynamic creativity of the marketplace than the bureaucratic order. Making a normative claim there, I suppose. So let's see if I can reconstruct a little bit. But it touches back to the point about, um, you know, Hayekian knowledge problems, essentially. Bureaucrats have limited knowledge. Uh, they have knowledge of, a, of their own system and the incentives of their own system. The dispersed knowledge of who needs help, what kind of help they need, it's, it's buried out in the social sector and in individuals who roam around looking to help people or encounter somebody that needs help. It's it's better in that sense, I think, for the negotiation of, of help to be to happen as close to those individuals who possess the knowledge, just like an exchange. I mean, if you're selling me some donuts, that's a bilateral exchange, pretty much. Um, so we need we we can get to a price based on what I'm willing to pay and you're willing to sell. And, and so we have this elevation of knowledge and slowly we see the patterns of prices that emerge. Um, pattern observation is much more difficult with these philanthropic exchanges, so to speak. And, and there is a, a form of exchange that takes place in a gift. There's also a form of uh, debt that, that is incurred when a gift is made. And so I think we have to really understand the nature of gifts and the way that they do impose debts upon uh, people. If, if I cannot freely exchange with you in a quid pro quo manner um, and you just gift me the donut, then I'm, I owe you something. So this is just part of our psyche, and I think we really have to understand a lot more uh, the way that gifts operate, this anthropology of gifts, um, 
And I think in modern philanthropy, we've taken a little bit less of that, you know, approach to understanding that the dignity of human beings comes from that ability to exchange as equals. Um, so if you're always the recipient of a gift without really even saying what it is that you needed, and maybe you didn't need the donut, maybe you need to learn how to make the donut, you know, I, to use those silly metaphors about, you know, teaching people to fish, but there's something in those interesting metaphors. Yeah, so it's it's curious to me. Sorry, um, that um, uh, yeah, much of the sort of critique um, of uh, sort of decentralized mutual assistance, and this actually stretches back at least a, a century or so, as the uh, sort of what is now known as the welfare state uh, came to form, is that. For somehow in these localised uh, settings, there are arbitrary distinctions being made between so-called deserving recipients and undeserving. But I think uh, you, I think your response is actually quite uh, important here because that criticism actually ignores the epistemic sort of dimensions of the issues where you know people on on the ground and circumstances of time and place. To paraphrase Hayek, are actually making these decisions, and certainly in the non non sort of non profit space, you, know, you are dealing with the, the management of resources and scarcities as well, even of, of time of, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Well, the bureaucratic solution, to go back to the quotation that you used to kind of jumpstart this thread of conversation, you know, the bureaucratic approach really is to look at individuals as sets. You have to have a class and they have to be treated the same somehow. So you're reducing that diversity of humanity into a single program, but not all people need the same thing. And so I'm reminded there, I mean, we mentioned Hayek's quotation. Um, I, I'm reminded there of, you know, Adam Smith's man of system and man of humanity. And the man of system has the chessboard and forgets that those people have inner springs. And so I think that the best philanthropy is one that really recognizes those inner springs of those individuals. And not every, you know, poor child in Appalachia needs the same kind of attention. That's why we tend to allow parents, for the most part, to decide what children need. Um, when the state steps in and takes that over, we miss something, we lose something about the attention to that individual, you know, care and feeding of, of a human being. Yeah, look, that, that's incredibly important then. And obviously there's a the complementary incentive problem that is raised, especially uh, by sort of public choice theorists like Buchanan and, and Dick Wagner, for example, referring to the Samaritan's dilemma. So uh, it sort of creates uh, dependency di dynamics if you perceive that there is a sort of financial commons attached, you know, to a centralised monocentrically sort of managed welfare state that substitutes for the rich ecologies that we're referring to. Yeah, and it, I think it's interesting that you're putting Buchanan and Wagner and the public choice tradition into the conversation. I am, I've been trying to dig into Buchanan's work a lot more lately, and, and Gordon Tullock has a really challenging essay called, uh, it's in the old papers, non-market process papers, but it's not for profit information, I think. And it's a, you know, you can find the paper online, I think, or you can email me for it. But the the insights of public choice there, and I think particularly, I've done some work recently with Buchanan's essay on club goods. And, you know, trying to look at the way that we're kind of missing the mark a little bit, we're, we're asking these questions. I mean, Buchanan's essay on club goods is, we think that if clubs are diverse and manifold, that they would be solving those problems. But the way that we theorize club goods is to make it something that, you know, is is now can be provided by the state. So, you know, the whole idea that provision through through bureaucratic means of club goods, that's, that's an oxymoron to me. So I've been trying to, to grapple a little bit with that. So we're looking not only, I think, it, with the, the questions around civil society and philanthropy, we really do have to come to this understanding of the collective action problems. So you and I can negotiate an exchange in, in the market. Everybody walks away happy. You and I might, in the Samaritan's Dilemma, negotiate some sort of help and assistance, and that's it's still a very individualized activity. The Samaritan in the story goes and hires another you know, entity to help provide the service. And so now we've entered a three-party or a triadic exchange and it starts to become very complicated. So the Samaritan's dilemma, and I'm not even, you know, I'm, I know that um, the work on triadic exchanges that Marta's doing, but doing with Dick, um, Dick Wagner, 
very important to really get into understanding and it's a new dimension of the problem. So we've got triadic exchanges with bureaucracies. We have really multi-sided kinds of exchanges as well. And so I think the work in the public choice tradition on the nature of, you know, bureaucratic action is very, very important. And I think Buchanan's work, he's flirting around the edges of a lot of these questions. And the critique that I have is that they're really sort of trapped on the welfare economics playing field. And that's my challenge to classical liberals is that to somehow say we have to move off of the welfare economics playing field and try to pull people into the entangled political economy playing field in a way. We have we can't ignore uh, the dimension of polities and civil society institutions, but very much if, if we're playing in this this realm of market failure, which means voluntary failure, government failure, it's failure all the way down, and we're not really analyzing things in, in the kind of way that we need to. So I think we need to go back and really analyze things from that bottom-up way of what is human cooperation. Sometimes it takes the form of markets, some of a, of a commercial exchange. Sometimes it takes a political collective action decision. Sometimes it takes a more civil society approach. And so I think then we have a much more heterogeneous use of the kinds of solutions to problems that we can get. So now I'm revealing my Lachmanian <laughs> tendencies. You know, I think there's heterogeneity in problems and heterogeneity in solutions. And the way we apply assets and capital to those problems happens in civil society, I think, the same way that it does in markets. Yep. Polycentricity and diversity comes to the fore. Absolutely. Let's now sort of turn our minds uh, to uh, sort of more contemporary developments in our sort of uh, quote unquote interesting times and uh, thus to sort of think about the state of civil society in the time of economic stagnation, social discord, and creeping authoritarianism. Um, so to, to start off here, I, I noticed in 2014 in one of your papers, you described an intellectual crisis in philanthropy of what you what you uh, note as an epistemic drift with respect to critical thinking about donor intent and philanthropic efficacy. So what here, what underpins your identification of this intellectual crisis? And do you think this crisis has abated in recent years or not? I think it's worse than ever. <laughs> but let me go back a little bit and tell you that I'm being... I'm plagiarizing there um, Vincent Ostrom's term from his book called The Intellectual Crisis in American Public Administration. Many, many years ago, Peter Beckey said, Lenore, you have to read this book. And I was like, hey, Pete, you know, why do I want to read a book with a title like that? <laughs> and now I want to reread it about, you know, every six weeks or something. So I think that Ostrom had a remarkable way there of, of putting his finger on this, you know, drift in American public administration. And I think we would be, you know, well, well served to go back and grapple there heavily. But, but as I read the book, I could see that the questions that I had been struggling with and thinking about philanthropy and its relationship to the welfare state were very aligned with the kinds of questions that Ostrom was, was exploring there in terms of the discipline of public administration. And as a historian, you start to look at the emergence of these institutions. I mean, really something called organized philanthropy comes about in the early 20th century. Co it co-evolves with the progressive era and with the progressive movement. And so you have these institutions that are all co-evolving with a certain mindset and a certain approach to social work through the understanding of social organization. So in Hayekian terms, it would be very taxist, top-down kinds of hierarchical organization the technocratic approach, you know, the this machine age ideology, we can run society the way that we run machines and run corporations. And so that was um, the, the bias then. And so much of philanthropy is just caught already from the beginning in that kind of an approach. And I think that it's led to a lot of groupthink. So philanthropists in general, in the big philanthropies, I think they're drifting more and more and more into one monolithic approach I think this is where I call it the, well, I call it many things, most of them not very kind, but I think in, in, in general, you know, the social justice industrial complex is, is one thing that I call it, or, you know, depending on another idea, so, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex. And so we really have not had sufficient public choice analysis of the sector and the incentives that get set up in the sector. 
philanthropy is a big industry in the United States and, you know, and around the world, a growing industry. So we have to think about how those kinds of industries work. What are the incentives? What are the knowledge problems? What are the social networks? But the drift is really a drift into a conception of constructivist social change. And I think this is an area where you and I may disagree on some things, even though I find for the most part, our work generally tends to kind of support, support. We've been kind of nudging one another through our work, I think, over the years. But I think this question about the nature of social change itself is one that I feel very strongly about. So I think this drift into constructivist social change is is a huge problem. So I think that's part of what I mean by the intellectual crisis. At its most simplistic, though, uh, the intellectual crisis stems from the idea that philanthropy's job is to demonstrate success in solving a problem and that you can then take that success and put it in the hands of a government bureaucracy and they can administer and solve all the problems. So that's the that's the operational aspect of the drift. But the, the underlying motivation for the drift, I think, is a certain hubris about the way that we can we can coordinate and design. I could use the term design society from the top down. So I actually uh, tend to think that uh, your diagnosis of the, the problems afflicting uh, philanthropy are quite similar to um, the observations made by the late uh, Martin uh, Morse Wooster, who, uh, who made uh, sort of very similar observations about sort of dysfunctions in philanthropy and the misalignment of interests between sort of donors and beneficiaries and the interme- intermediator in between. So uh, I think that's, uh, you know, they're, they're quite profound insights. So I'd like to uh, turn now uh, to the contributions of someone we've just uh, cited, uh, Vincent Ostrom, toward a modern appreciation of democratic self-governance. So as you know, uh, Ostrom himself was deeply influenced by Alexis de Tocqueville, who forewarned of the social pathologies arising from uh, diminution of the art, practice and science of association in everyday life. So do you think, and I think I suspect uh, I know what the answer is to this question, give me your previous response, but do you think that Australian thinking can help assist our communities out of the intellectual crisis situation uh, we have just referred to? And if so, how? I think it's imperative that we study, you know, what the Ostroms are doing because of the the concrete focus on problem solving. So I think that's going to be one of the really critical pieces um, in analyzing the way that people come together to solve problems, which I think is the heart of Eleanor's work. How are people doing it? So you get this institutional analysis and design framework, which to me is a it's a descriptive framework. I think some of the challenges turn when we then turn and try to apply IAD as a design framework. And I think that's a real critical question in the Ostrom's work. But um, apart from Eleanor's work, my interest has been really been in the theoretical work of Vincent um, that set the stage for that, trying to understand how people solve problems. And I think that it's interesting that in the Ostrom's work, the term civil society, that these theoretical questions we're discussing in this sort of approach in our conversation with our vocabulary, that's not really what's on the table in the Ostrom's work. And so Vincent's using democracy there, I think, as a stand-in for civil society. I think historically that that sort of makes sense. I think we have to really challenge him a little bit on that. And I think we have to come to, to a different kind of an understanding because I don't think democracy is the best term. I don't think it's the best cognate for civil society. I think there's some problems with that because of you know, the political dimensions of the term. But, but it goes back to this idea in my mind in, in that really there's a couple of conceptions of civil society that, that emerge in the early 20th century in the progressive era. One is this progressive democratic vision where civil society is something like this space where we all come together and we talk about what we want to do and then we go and then try to implement that through our polity. And then there's the progressive welfareist vision, which is a much more technocratic vision, but it's also there in that early progressive era. I call it progressive welfareist because civil society there really becomes an extension of the welfare state. So I think both the welfare state mechanisms and the democratic political mechanisms are troubling in the way that they work out. And so I think that Ostrom probably comes out of that progressive democratic vision a little bit. I'm not calling him a progressive. I think he's a great critic of it. And I think his work on the meaning of democracy and the vulnerability of democracies really pushes 
pushes that work a little bit. And I think the answers are in Vincent's work, but you have to read broadly across his work to understand, you know, the important addition to this conversation he makes then in the meaning of American federalism, where we're really starting to get a more positive understanding of federalism, and in his book on the nature of the compound republic. And so I think the compound republic is a better way of thinking if we're going to put our political science hat on for the moment. You know, it's a better way of thinking about the kind of polity that we have constitutionally in the United States. And so I think the challenge that we have is, is taking the Ostrom vision too literally and not really expanding back out to Vincent's broad, broad theoretical interest and then understanding how we sort of transliterate those into the terms that we're talking about in civil society. So I, I think there's a lot there. I think it's imperative that we get there and really utilize the work of the Ostroms. I don't think it has all the answers, but I think it's got a lot of insights that will help us come to a better frame for thinking about civil society. Thoroughly agree. Uh, And so to another topic altogether, in recent years, there seems anecdotally at least uh, to be a groundswell of progressivist opinion, for want of a better phrase, to the effect that philanthropic donations by the wealthy are somehow inadmissible. Now, I personally think that's a diabolical position to maintain and if uh, one is interested in the future of civil society. But what is your position on this matter and what do you see as the implications of discouraging, if, if anything, donations by high-income earners on the balance between state and civil society? Well, I'm glad you used that as an example because I think it puts us onto some terrain that we haven't explored very carefully yet. I'm just beginning to open up some thinking on this myself, but it is around the question I said we might disagree on, which is this nature of social change. I just refuse to use the term in in any kind of actionable way. I say social change is a fact. It's not a telos and it's not a target. And when we try to take social change and make it into a telos or make it into a target, then we're running into problems. Then we're running into the constructivist problem. But to have an interesting conversation with you about it, which we haven't ever talked about this yet, I'm just framing it out a little bit now. Uh, there's a really interesting paper by Paul Alajika and Pete Becky from 2011 called Institutional Design and Ideas-Driven Social Change. And they, they bring those from work into this conversation about social change. And I'm not a denier of change. I'm not a, you know, a radical conservative who says nothing should change. I think change happens. So that's a social fact. But when we start setting about designing changes, we run into the same problems that we run in any kind of design problem. There are unintended consequences. We have limited knowledge, you know. So if we're trying to do social change, so society being a big abstraction, we're way, way away from all those people solving problems. We're way away from the institutions those people are utilizing to solve problems. But there's a puzzle here that I'd be great to hear your thoughts on as well. And it has it relates a little bit to the work that you did on social movements and the way that they really are, you know, advocating social change at some level, uh, the change of something in society. So I might say that, you know, it's great to advocate the change of something in society. But I think um, that we do it sometimes without humility. So I think the question is, you know, where does humility come in? So I want to think about like these multi-levels. Paul and Pete talk about, you know, in the Ostromian sense, there's the operational level of people's concepts, knowledge. So that's that's what drives their day-to-day decision-making, day-to-day problem-solving is this operational level. Then we have a collective choice level. We have to get together and agree to how we're going to agree or to set some rules. We have some institutions around collective choice. And then we have constitutional choice, which is the Uber rules with capital R, and this is how we're going to change our rules. So the problem that I have here with thinking about this whole area of social change, social movements, is the fragile place that it leaves epistemic considerations. So Vincent goes on in that really wonderful chapter, The Meaning of Democracy, on epistemic choice and public choice. Um, and I, I grab, been grappling with that particular essay for, you know, 10 years or so now, and I still am seeing new things in it that we need to talk about. But, but um, you know, he defines there, you know, the epistemic choice is this conceptualizations, assertions, and the information to be used and acted upon in problem-solving modes. And so when we look at these big movements for some sort of social change, what's the problem? 
you know, where is the problem? And we, we're not breaking down the problem then to levels that human beings can negotiate and solve together. And we're, you know, we're, we're, what we're doing in many, many ways is destabilizing the epistemic frameworks. But there's a problem in that our rules about our rules of engagement around change are constrained by constitutional forms as well. So I think there's a process where constitution, if you can't move a change in through your society through constitutional forms, you can push on the epistemic forms. And the danger of that is then you create utter confusion. You get cascading confusion and cascading conflict, which is very hard to put back in the box. And I think that's part of the problem that Vincent was dealing with when he was trying to draw our attention to this question of epistemic choice, which is at at all those operational levels, those epistemic frames. But when we destabilize them, our constitutional rules seem not to matter so much. So I think that it's a really interesting question about how we pursue improvements and human betterment, I would use the term, uh, within constitutional restraints. And I, I think that means both in our understanding of you know what it means to be human, but also the polities that we live in, the communities that we live in. So, so much of the change we pursue now wants to ignore a lot of the evolved forms we have of rulemaking. And it wants to have to sort of just work around the damage of the political order, I think. So I think we've got a problem, and this is why the entangled political economy framework is so important. You know, if one of these nodes of a society is dysfunctional, the others aren't going to be quiet. They're going to try to solve the problems. But the question is, at what scale? So that was a very long answer, but I think, you know, in many ways, I'd like to think some more about this nature of epistemic choice and its its relationship to the problem of social change, so to speak. So I just won't, I won't use the term positively because I think it tends to become a telos of a small group. And this is where the democratic piece fits on. You know, when a small group can affect a change that becomes controlling for everybody, there's some very controversial, you know, topics on that, like the marriage issue. These are very controversial issues. And I don't think, I think we're in a situation where we can say it's settled law, but for all the people who are not in favor of marriage, of same-sex marriages, they're not, it's not settled for them at all. And that's what I mean by cascading confusions, you know. So I think sometimes people working side by side together outside of a compulsory framework learn how to negotiate those conflicts. We're able to have a little friction in our social lives and we learn how to work together just like we do in families. And we do that in best when we do it in the sense of human relationship. And when we elevate it to these big political change slogans, we alienate one another. So, and that happens on, you know, all sides of the political spectrum, I think. But that's the puzzle that's on my mind lately, is, you know, how we bring this kind of epistemic choice uh, framework into the conversation a little bit more strongly. Look, I actually happen to think there's a lot of validity to uh, what what you're um, saying. There's actually much that I uh, happen to agree with. Uh, and I certainly, in, in my own sort of work, identified social movement failures as resting in um, the perceptions of uh, sort of certain activists who regard society as an object, a manipulable uh, object, when it's not, not, not so at all. So sort of in the spirit of entangled political economy, we actually understand we we sort of coexist in ecologies of uh, interaction where you know people can sincerely agree or disagree. So uh, certainly, um, I'd, I'd be very keen to uh, sort of actively sort of respond to the challenges that you um, uh, put up, uh, though regrettably sort of time doesn't allow for that uh, now, but uh, certainly an opportunity for uh, future conversation. So we're almost uh, about to wrap up, but I'm interested in asking about uh, your your views about uh, James Buchanan. So as you know, he, he is a public choice scholar and originator of the Virginia School of Political Economy. And he once pondered if citizens in modern Western societies are actually, quote unquote, afraid to be free, do you actually think there's any validity to his claim? And if there is, what does Buchanan's concern imply with regards to our human capacities to associate civically for mutual benefit? Uh, that's a that's a trenchant question. It's been a while since I've read the essay from Buchanan where from where that came, but um I think there is a certain aspect of populations in general, you know, afraid to be free. But I think that's uh, 
an emergent property of a certain kind of a social construction and social ordering. And I think it ties back to the Cornelian insights of alienation. I think we, we all feel sort of alienated right now with our political processes, which are so dysfunctional. And when we see these huge, huge structures around us, I mean, this is the critique that uh, Peter Berger and John Richard Newhouse make in, in their book on civil society, which I have some disagreements with, but um, we won't go into those right now. But the bigness factor is really a problem. We, we are alienated by, you know, global trade. We, we don't know how to impact that as individuals. So I don't know that it's, it's a fear if, or people are afraid to be free, but I don't know that they quite know how to be free because there, there seem to be constrained choice sets. And I'm all in favor of, you know, blowing up the choice sets so that we have a genuinely colliding society. And I know you and I both like that metaphor and have some work to do to kind of unpack what we mean by it and in the sense of a robust theory. But I, I think that the more choice sets people have, the better. And I can point very practically to a, an organization that's working right now. And hopefully this will be something people, you know, run and take a look at, which is, you know, in the poverty reduction space, um, there's an organization out of Paraguay that has a product called Poverty Stoplight. And when I was working over at um, Koch Institute, you know, we were looking at poverty and different solutions and things of that nature. And when I read uh, this book called Who Owns Poverty by Martin Burt, who was the founder of Fundación Paraguaya, Boy, the, it's like scales fell. You know, it's almost like Hayek's use of knowledge. I say somebody had figured out how to go to people who were economically disadvantaged in a way and say, okay, here's 50 indicators of what a prospering life looks like. So we have this af- affirmative flip of the narrative. You're not poor, but here's what prosperity could look like. And they give them the 50 indicators and say, where are you on these things? So you self-score. It's not some expert comes in from the outside and says, you have this or that. Each family subjectively scores where they are on, on an objective measure. So let's say indoor toilet is prosperous. You have to go outside and there's, you have some sort of other system. You could just take a system like that. You self-score. Then you decide what you want to work on. And so this project is really promising because it gives people this choice set. There are a lot of different ways to say, well, do we want to expand what our prosperity looks like? And that's not just financial. It's on a lot of different dimensions. But I, I really like the approach. Um, I think implementing it is is challenging um, in terms of you know working with people. But this group out of Paraguay is having an expansive reach, and a lot of groups are becoming interested in it. I think because it speaks to this desire of humans to be free, to be able to make choices. But I think that um, when we when we're making choices and the results don't match the choice, we get you know we do find ourselves in a kind of a learned helplessness. So maybe I would challenge Buchanan a little bit and say maybe people people are helpless to be free (laughs) and that we have to figure out, you know, in a way. And that doesn't have anything to do with socioeconomic level. I think that we have to figure out what it means to really examine our choice sets and think about the consequences of choices. And the more that uh, we're alienated and buffered from the consequences of our choices in the small things, uh, the less we learn. And so I think human learning is very, very important. So we can take that institutionally today and look at the way that, you know, the bank bailouts have happened and all of these different things. Um, if there are no consequences for action at the highest level, the Chicago riots to bring it down to really, you know, contemporary events, these riots in Chicago with these teenagers roaming all over the city a couple of weeks ago. Um, it looks like from the political actors there, there's not going to be much consequence for those kids. You know, that's challenging because there should be some sort of negative consequence when they can attribute, you know, violent actions. Um, it, you know, yet to be seen whether there's going to be any kind of prosecution coming out of that, that episode. So troubling kinds of things. And I think in general, um, you know, people just have to learn how to be free. So the less we understand about how that actually works and how small choices can scale up into big freedoms, the less we're going to be able to help people and help ourselves do that. I, I think uh, I think what you say is uh, is is quite quite apt. As a sort of final question, and this can be responded as long and as short or as short as you like. How do you define civil society? And actually, what does that term mean to you when someone, in this case me, uh, invokes it? I don't think we have a good definition of civil society. 
Nikolai Wenzel and I just did a, an essay talking about this question. And I, and I think we describe it there. And I think this is uh, drawing upon something Pete Becky said one time. So I attribute this to Nikolai, but I think it works. It's a practice in search of a theory. So we have all of these things that people pragmatically do and we see it but we haven't yet really theorized and given a good definition from the classical liberal perspective. That's where I think it's really right now it's a practice in search of a theory. So therefore there's a a lot of work to do. So uh, I sincerely thank Lenore Ely for her time and her crucial insights into the theory of philanthropy, civil society, and the intimate connections between freedom of civil association and liberalism. The Conversations on Philanthropy Journal maintains an online presence, which I encourage you to read, and Lenore's scholarly works can be found online. Uh, Lenore, thank you very much once again for a wonderful conversation into the nature of civil society. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.